Welcome to Women Wanting Women, where we explore topics that matter to women like us. We talk about being a woman, attracting women, and becoming more powerful women by developing more self-confidence and always reaching for the next level in our self-actualization. I'm your hostess, lesbian love coach, Jordana Michelle. And if you're not already with the woman of your dreams and you're ready to finally find her so you could be best friends who learn and grow together and share your dreams together and have adventures together and share passionate intimacy together, then also check out my website, womenwantingwomen.com, because it's packed with resources that can help you, including my guide to quickly and easily eliminating rejection from your life, a how-to guide for finding your lesbian soulmate, a quiz to find out what qualities the woman of your dreams will find most attractive about you when you meet her, a report that explains the three biggest mistakes most women make when coming out and how to avoid them, and a matchmaking survey you can fill out in case I already know the woman of your dreams. All of that is free at womenwantingwomen.com. But before I go any further, I have a question. Is there something that your friends and family come to you for? What do you know, what are you good at that the people in your life turn to you for for help on? In this episode of Women Wanting Women, I interview my friend Jen T. Grace, who for a long time was the go-to lesbian for her friend that constantly needed advice for how to make LGBT patients feel more comfortable and understood in the hospital where she was working. The advice Jen kept giving her friend in the hospital was eventually turned into a blog, and after a while, Jen earned the nickname of The Professional Lesbian. And this led to a whole career of entrepreneurial adventures that she talks about in detail during the interview. Jen is such a funny, interesting, creative person with a great perspective who's done really important work for our community. So I'm very happy to share with you my conversation with The Professional Lesbian, Jen T. Grace. Jen, the professional lesbian, so happy to finally have you on the podcast. I'm so happy that I'm here. I feel like it's been uh, ages that we've been trying to coordinate this. Yeah, but here we are. So I'm super excited. So I love your name, the professional lesbian. How'd you come up with it? What does it mean to you? Tell me all about it. Oh, such a fun question. I feel like I haven't gotten this question in a while either. So the origin of the professional lesbian really kind of came out or stemmed from a joke. And so I started working with corporations and small businesses and nonprofits, pretty much anyone who was interested in knowing how to really effectively communicate to the LGBTQ community. And I started that back in 2006. So we're talking over a decade ago at this point. And I would jokingly say to people, that I was a professional lesbian. Like that's what I did for a living because I was educating people around the LGBTQ community. And I found that a lot of people just, they really kind of clung to it because it's a little bit funny, a little tongue in cheek, but at the same time, it makes you think like, what, what exactly does that mean? And so when I realized that it was just kind of like this thing that stuck, I just kind of doubled down on it. I'm like, you know what? I am just actually going to brand myself as the professional lesbian because I think in a lot of ways when we're having conversations with people where there is some level of um, 
uneasiness or people don't understand maybe what you're talking about, if we can break the ice with humor, you can get a lot faster in terms of educating someone. So that's my way of breaking the ice with folks who, you know, maybe they're not fully comfortable with what they don't know yet. And so you have somebody that brands themselves almost so ridiculously, you can't not at least get a little laugh out of it and then want to learn a little. It's so funny. I I really can see why that would work because it is. It's so over the top that then it takes the pressure off and makes it fun. I think that's it. And allows everyone to enjoy themselves together. And now that we're all having fun, let's have a good conversation. Mm -hmm. And then the conversation would be about how to communicate to the LGBT community. Was this for, for those businesses trying to brand or was it, are they communicating to LGBT employees? What were they what were they trying to communicate and why and in what situations were you helping them? So I started off really with a focus around LGBTQ marketing specifically because marketing is my background. I have both of my grad and undergrad degrees are tied into marketing and I realized after a while that I didn't really like the execution piece of the marketing and I really really prefer to talk about kind of the strategy of why you want to market to our community, what that actually means, what that can do for a company's bottom line. And over the course of a number of years, it kind of morphed into really getting down to the meat and potatoes of the fact that it's communications that are really the biggest downfall that companies have when they're marketing to the community. So it was really, it's kind of I've always had two focuses, one focus being on helping corporations, mostly fortune companies that are in financial services or banking or insurance or things like that. And that's been to help them communicate better with their employees, yes, but also for their employees to better communicate with their potential customers. So more from a sales angle and a sales side of things, because, you know, you being someone who's part of the community as well you realize that when someone's selling to you and they're doing it in a really inauthentic way, we can sniff that out in like two seconds when we can feel that somebody is just really being disingenuine. And so really kind of helping people understand those subtle things that they may be saying that are giving off that vibe, even if they don't mean it, because that's what I've learned over these last 13 years is that a lot of times people will say something and they have absolutely no idea what the hidden implication is of what they just said. And it was not their intention in any way, shape or form. But as skeptical LGBT consumers that we are, we're taking in all of those cues, whether they're verbal cues, nonverbal cues, whatever they might be. And we're digesting that and, and making that decision in the moment of, is this person someone that is safe to do business with? If yes, okay, let's, let's go for it. And if no, then we're going to find somebody else that can do business with us in a more safe way. And it could be something as simple as the way that they communicated a statement or asked a question. And to me, it's, it's tragic when, especially when there's like really hardcore allies who really have good intentions and they've just, you know, they said it wrong and that's not what they meant. And then they lose the business as a result. Yeah. I think oftentimes in life when we're interacting with someone and they say something, it's often not what they said, but what they showed they didn't know (laughs) by what they didn't say that can tell a whole lot about the conversation that we're either having or not having with that person. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It makes a lot of sense. So then you were working with these big fortune companies, banking and insurance. And so the idea would be dealing with customer service about a lesbian couple comes in and they want to open a bank account or buy insurance or buy a home or whatever. And then you'd be helping them speak in a way that makes queer 
couples or, or individuals feel, feel more safe and give off the right vibe. Yeah. And it's, it's honestly something as simple as saying partner instead of assuming husband or wife. That is such a small example, but such a significant example. Like I know that I, my, my ears perk up when I hear somebody who will say, oh, you know, what does your partner do or, or some question thereof versus just assuming husband or assuming wife. And that alone can send off such a signal of inclusion. And it's such a small thing to do. But a lot of times people don't even think twice because it's so kind of ingrained in us to just make that assumption. So then when we're talking about meeting an individual and we don't know their orientation and then saying partner instead of assigning a gender to what their partner might be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something as simple as that. It it sounds kind of almost crazy, but at the same time, it is 2019 as of the recording of this, and I still have similar conversations with companies, and it's the first time that they're hearing this message. And you know, and it doesn't even necessarily anymore have to do with sexual preference, uh, so much as a younger generation growing up not necessarily buying into gender conformity in the way that they used to. So the distinction between husband, wife versus partner becomes more and more important when we're dealing with humans who it might be someone with male genitalia married to someone with female genitalia. But if neither of them see themselves as part of any given gender, Mm -hmm. then uh, calling them husband, wife is just as unwoke. So is this all about being woke? Is this all about political correctness? What is this? Is that really what it comes down to? Mm. It's a good question. I don't know that I would call it woke. That's not the bucket I would put it in. And I also don't really think it's political correctness. I think it's just a base fundamental understanding that gender, gender identity, sexual orientation, sexual preference, all of those things are fluid and that we shouldn't be confining people into boxes. And we should be thinking about that as we're approaching any given community that we're doing business with. So I don't know that I would really like, yes, there's certainly a political correctness piece to it, of course, but that's not really the the angle because the people that I'm working with are people who want this information. They're not being forced this informa- the information upon them, which I feel like is different. Right. They want the information because they're saying, I would like to communicate better. Yeah. Yeah. Please tell me what, please tell me how to say this so that it comes out right because I want to be more sensitive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's the people who have, you know, LGBTQ friends, family, you know, coworkers they've known for decades, any number of kind of configurations that, that you would think would be more kind of clued into how to communicate properly. But at the end of the day, if no one taught them, how would, how would they know that? No, absolutely. It's so ironic to me just being your friend mm-hmm. and the kinds of conversations that we have that you're the person teaching people this because (laughs) I just know that you're not someone who really would ever get offended by a mislabeling. There are people who say, I don't buy into labels and then therefore labels make them upset. Mm -hmm. And I think you're the opposite. I think that notion of being upset about it, that's, I don't think that you've, that I've ever known you to be that way. And I think that's why I'm the perfect person to do this. Because there's, I have said on every stage I have spoke on in the last 13 years, 
hit me with anything. Like I, I dare you to insult me. I dare you to like really do something that is going to actually take me by surprise. And I've yet to be taken by surprise. So I think that that's kind of the perfect scenario because if, if I go into a conversation with somebody and I'm like, please try to offend me, like I'm telling you, there's nothing that you're going to say or do that will offend me. I will tell you what you did wrong and I will coach you through how to do it differently in the future. But when someone has that safety of like, oh, wow, I could really say anything to her and she's not going to judge me for my lack of unknowing or lack of awareness, that is such a freedom for people who are so scared to say the wrong thing to somebody. I completely understand. And I I think that I fill a similar role to people in my life, especially the straight people in my life. I know that other people are sensitive, therefore I try and be sensitive to other people who, when they might be sensitive, but I personally don't feel sensitive about those things. So I'm someone that my stray friends can ask me anything and I, I'm happy to share. And in fact, I think it's a great role to play where I could be the person who helps them understand better. Because if, for example, if you showed up on stage and, w- and, and was upset at people not understanding and teaching from that place, there might they probably wouldn't learn it as well, or they it would be harder for them to receive, or they'd be more afraid. There'd be more fear and defensiveness probably on their part. Yeah, and then they're not going to do anything. Right. So when it's coming from you, the the exact opposite of someone who I would think of as expecting others to be politically correct or woke about anything. Um, it's interesting that you're the deliverer of that message, but you're so right. You'd be the perfect person. And that's why the professional lesbian moniker works because it also shows like there's still that playfulness and the humor to it that also is used to kind of like de desensitize like the whole situation at large. And, and what's interesting is that I still play this role for straight friends, family members, you name it in my life personally, as well as professionally, of course. But the whole reason I started my blog back in 2012 was because of one of my best friends who's a nurse practitioner who I have been best friends with since we were in high school. And she would ask me or just text me at the most random days or times, oh, how do I do this? Or how would I talk to this patient? Or how do I communicate with a trans patient? Or what can I say or do that would make it known that I'm inclusive regardless of how people are showing up? And so she would just keep asking me these questions and I would keep responding to them. And it would take like thought and like real, real legwork on my end to construct a very proper response that would be beneficial for her as a healthcare provider, but more beneficial to the patients that she's seeing. And so that started in 2012. And then I'm like, you know what? I love you. Please keep asking me inappropriate questions. Do it all day long. I love this, but I'm going to take our correspondence and I'm going to start blogging about it so other people can learn from this. And that's how my blog started. So my very first articles on my blog, which there are almost 500 in total at this point, the very, the very few are really healthcare focused specifically because of her. So I think that we all, you know, for those listening, I think we all have a role to play in the education of others. So if you are that token lesbian or token queer person or token 
token any part of the LGBTQ spectrum, it's almost our responsibility in a way to help educate those around us and not get mad at them when they ask you a question that seems so ridiculous, you don't know how they wouldn't know the answer to. Just understand that they're coming from a different vantage point and there's no reason they should know. And it's our job to kind of be the ones that educate them. Because if we're mean and nasty to them, it's going to freeze them in their tracks from wanting to do any further good because they're going to be so afraid of doing or saying the wrong thing. There's no reason they should know. Yeah. You know, and so much, so many of us understand that experience because we all came out. And that's what's so interesting about coming out, where we show up in this world in a totally new culture, having to relate in a totally different way. I, didn't, I mean, I, I, I'll just speak for myself because I didn't grow up knowing anyone who was queer at all. And I had to learn things and my family had to learn things. My friends around me had to learn things. And everyone who who hasn't grown up that way or who doesn't have that experience yet, we all have that moment in life where we learn things for the first time. Mm-hmm. And but what's what's hard is when those issues are laced with so much pain and sensitivity on the other person's side because these are things that a lot of people in our community feel judged for or have lost families or they've been kicked out of their families for it or they don't feel safe in their bodies or in their work or in their homes or and a lot of women who listen to this who live in countries where you can't be openly gay they don't even feel safe in their countries so um of course there's sensitivity which i understand but mm-hmm. you're so right you know if we're in a safe place where we can be where we can play that role and be the educator then it's a beautiful thing for us to be able to do. Unfortunately, not everyone can, right? No, no. And I think that comes slightly from a place of privilege if you can be an educator. But I also think in, like, I think of the most recent uh, celebrity situation with Mario Lopez making a comment about trans, um, trans kids that was an uneducated comment. And I didn't follow it super closely. However, what I can say as it relates to that is that I think that, and this might be a contrarian point of view, but I think him coming out and saying something that was absolutely ignorant and coming from an uneducated place, he's a celebrity, he has a platform, people listen to him and take his word as gospel, right? But at the same time, our community condemned him within minutes of him making that statement. And while, yes, I believe he should be condemned because he is coming from a place where he's making, like his statements are being, you know, really being listened to by people who are trusting his opinion. But at the same time, our community reacting the way it does to any number of situations where somebody has misspoke or said something from a place of ignorance, rather than taking the path of let's educate this person, so they can then educate others. We tear them down to the to their core and we make them feel like jerks and we make them feel terrible for what they've just done, which to some degree is perfectly in the right if you're gonna be publicly making statements that are, that are harmful and detrimental to people within our community. But at the same time, the message that that sends is for every other person out there who may have shared his point of view, may have had said similar phrasings of the way in which he said it, there are so many, so many things that are bad that are coming out of that situation because now there's even more people out there 
who are absolutely afraid to ask the question, why and what was wrong with what he said? You know what I mean? Like, so I think that we do a lot of damage to ourselves at the same time, but it's a really tricky balance because you can't have somebody out there mis misinforming people about a community in which they're not part of. But also we need to start from a place of education and helping them understand what they said is not right and getting them to move across that, you know, move along the needle because ultimately there's probably hundreds of people out there now who will never ever ask a single question as it relates to that entire incident. And I feel like that is a, uh, an unfortunate situation because those people could potentially be advocates for our community. Yeah, this is sort of the new culture right now with public shaming mm -hmm. and tearing people down. And when we talk about, you know, of course, we can't have anyone making public statements that are harmful, but we're living in a world now where every statement is a public statement because privacy mm -hmm. doesn't exist the way that it used to. Mm -hmm. When all of our conversations that we are sending via text can easily be intercepted and then published mm -hmm. or our emails, when it used to be that our information, our conversations were way more private, mm -hmm. or at least we felt that way. Maybe the government was still eavesdropping, but there was just less, um, you know. So this is a new reality that we're living into. And I wonder how it's going to start to change who we are as people. And yeah, on, and of course, there's the consequence that then we become afraid to ask the questions. Or maybe we didn't even know there was a question, right? Because then it's going back to um, there was no reason why they should know. There's mm -hmm. a lot of things we don't know. And you know, what's interesting is I was just, uh, had a, a girl's weekend with a couple of, a couple of ladies who also identify as part of the community. And the three of us were at the beach and just having conversations about identity and really having very deep discussions about kind of the changing climate that we're living in and censorship and all, you know, similar to what you just kind of started to bring up. And what was interesting is that our end result of that conversation, and mind you, these are two other very um, public and well-known people within our community as well. And the three of us collectively were like, you know what, we wouldn't actually be able to bring how we feel about these matters to the forefront because we would be criticized and burned at the stake. So then we were joking of like, oh, maybe we could do a podcast where we disguise our voices like the the female chipmunks or like we really made, we were going down a whole rabbit hole of entertainment around this, but it was just the fact of it was even for people who are in places of influence, there is a risk by saying how you, what you really feel about a certain topic. Especially people in influence. Right, and I think that that's a detriment because I think that we should be able to be publicly talking about what the real reality is of a lot of these situations. But if any one of us did, like even if you did having this podcast, you could be tarred and feathered as a result of saying something that's completely, you know, out of alignment, but you might have, like, if you said something that seemed so contrary and so, so left field, but you had a point, people aren't going to listen to the point. They're going to listen to what they want to hear. And then they're going to criticize you and tear you down as a result. And I think that that is what the reality of our society is now. And it's only going to get worse. Right. And probably the reason they're going to do that is twofold. If I understand one of them is probably speaking from their pain and whatever part of them when they were younger, couldn't stand up to the bully or didn't have the power to protect themselves. Now there's the part that comes out and says, no, hell no, right now I'm going to protect myself. So there's that that comes out of them. And then also the part that just wants to be seen and wants to be important and wants to make noise or something. 
um, and be right mm-hmm. and be seen as right and good and on the right side of things. So then you take sides and then in taking sides, everyone's sort of standing against this one person that otherwise didn't need to be ganged up on. But I do think that's the future. Do you want to know something? I'm not only do I agree with everything that you said, and not only do I think it's a huge detriment, and not only do I agree that people of influence are taking a huge risk saying how they feel about anything. And by the way, right, when we listen to, I don't know if you know Brene Brown mm-hmm. um, and, and all of the talk she gives about vulnerability, anyone, I mean, having a podcast at all is scary, saying, you know, every time I release a podcast, I am a little bit nervous. Mm-hmm. And anytime I make a video, I'm a little bit nervous because it's very exposing. And otherwise, I, I'm not, I was never someone that posted a lot on social media. I still, it's not my thing to just, to be very open about those things. So it's scary no matter what. But I'm not someone that keeps to myself in my friendships. I wear my heart on my sleeve. And anyone who is a friend of mine knows everything I think and feel, which means that so do whatever online creepers that ever might be listening in on whatever I'm doing. And my bigger fear, more than necessarily an incorrect tweet, because I don't tweet enough to be afraid enough about that at this point <laughs> in my life, um, but my fear more more that someone's going to listen in on a conversation I had with my best friend where I complained about my mother on a bad moment or something, and then someone black, you know, came to me and said, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to play this tape for your mother, you know, Mm -hmm. and how much it would hurt her to hear me say things in that way, because I love my mom and no one's perfect or my father, for example, you know, um, and, and have that be played to them. That actually makes me more afraid because I think that we're moving into a world where that's, I don't know why we just went onto this topic and I'm sorry for anyone listening, but it is something I think about (laughs) more than I think about the public shaming. I also think about we're about to see a whole new level of, um, with hackers and stuff, we could be seeing a whole new level of blackmail and private shaming because that's not something that the internet would know about, but it could really devastate a family. Just having people best taping their best friends, conversations with their best friends and then threatening to show it to other private, I think. And so the question of what it means to, to um, be human and what it is to have relationships and to really understand that sometimes we speak from pain, sometimes we just need to express ourselves. Um, and just because we say something that, you know, and, and because up until now, we've lived in a world where those parts of ourselves were never shown, except for to our best friends, but the people we loved didn't get to see them. I'm sure my mother equally has said things to my father about me that she wouldn't want me to hear necessarily because it's not ultimately her overall truth. It would just sound really bad if I heard it in that moment. And my hope for all people is that we understand that even if one day we get played a very, very, very ugly tape, that we know how to process it in a different way, that we have a new understanding of humanity and the fact that stuff comes out of us, or at least to me, not everyone, Uh, My ex, for example, didn't always express herself and didn't communicate that way. I'm more of a communicator. So I have best friends that I'll just say everything to. And I don't know if everyone's like that. um, But so there's that too. Does any of what I just said make sense? It makes perfect sense to me. And I think that that's one of the main reasons why I love publishing books and specifically memoirs, because all of the context is there. 
versus what we're talking about and what you're saying is those micro moments where something that someone said was taken out of context. I think that's what is the thing that is damaging reputations and causing rifts and strife across the board with a lot of people versus when you have the opportunity to tell your story in its entirety, then you don't have to worry as much. You still have to worry about, of course, how someone might have interpreted what you said or did, but at least you have the entire story there to work with. Totally. And the story that day could be something to the effect of, and I left the building and all I could think about was everything I hated about her because I was having this horrible moment and I was feeling so ashamed and I was saying these horrible things. But then when I turned the corner and I saw that puppy dog, I realized blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden you can put context in, mm-hmm. in what, was just, what was just being expressed, which isn't bad when there is context, but can be so harmful when there's no context. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because people don't know that turn the corner moment. They only know what you're saying that's bad and how they're perceiving that as bad and wrong. And they're not, they don't know that there was a. That there was the shame that, that sparked it or that it was coming from a place of hurt that wasn't real and that it was causing all kinds of defense mechanisms that, you know, that colored the words that were coming out. There's a lot of, there's a lot, I think, I think we're about to go through a period of history where we're going to see some, some really upsetting things within, and, and they're going to be more private shaming than, than what the public shaming that we've seen. And I, 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 would, I hope we'll all be able to ride that wave with families intact. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Yeah, that should be interesting. Yeah. Um, but you got into publishing. Let's talk more about that because now the professional lesbian isn't the ma- your main work anymore. You have moved on to publishing, right? Yeah, I started publishing in twenty late 2015, officially. And it stemmed from the fact that I've written four books specifically on LGBTQ marketing and communications. I have another book that I wrote that's mental health related. And then, you know, everybody I know was like, oh, how did you do it? And they were asking a gazillion questions related to how to actually get a book published. And I decided that I would teach people in groups. And then people went through the groups and they decided that they just wanted me to do it for them. And here I am, Four years later with a publishing company that I did not did not set out to start, but it's definitely the direction that I think I was I was meant to be in from a just kind of an alignment standpoint. Well, it sounds to me like everything you've done has been aligned because even the professional lesbian started with your friend just legitimately asking you questions and you just giving answers because that's what you were doing anyway. And then seeing that there was so much value in the conversations that you were having and that other people would find value there. So you publish that. So you you let that be seen by the world. And then next you have this experience that you went through and then all this advice you were giving. And then it turned out actually they didn't really want to know how how you did it. They just wanted you to do it for you. But still the Mm -hmm. process of you just showing up and saying, okay, if, if, if my truth and my knowledge is valuable to others, I'll, you know, offer it, which is so great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love it. It's so the opposite of it's the opposite of having an idea and trying to sell it to someone. You really found that other people, you're just giving the world what they were already asking of you. And you know what's interesting, and this is, especially if you have listeners who are entrepreneurial or, or business owners, I had heard the advice, I can't tell you how many times, because I've been in business for myself for like 15 years at this point. And I had heard so many times, build it, 
sell it first, then create it or sell it first and then build it. And I thought, who the hell gives out nonsense advice like that? And I was so reluctant to that whole idea of selling something before you've actually created it. And what happened is that in my professional lesbian consulting world, I created an online program that was very specific to very much around the marketing piece of it, like the the strategies for marketing, how to set up, you know, proper campaigns, terminology, you name it. And I, I don't even know what year this was, probably 2013-ish, maybe. Could have been 2012, I don't even know. But it was a while ago, my point. And it did not sell. I sold like a couple. And I put so much time and effort into creating that program. And I was so bummed and pissy that it didn't sell when I finally did it. And then fast forward to 2015, when I started this, just started the percolation of this idea of like, all right, you know, like how can I teach people in a group how to publish a book. And what I did then is that I sold it to seven people and then I built it as I went. And that has transformed everything of what I did. So it seems really counter to say, sell something and then create it. But the reality is, is that when I first heard that, I thought that was the biggest BS type of statement someone could ever say to me. But the reality is that it works. But I think the only reason and the only way it can work is that if you're honest with the people that you're working with of like, listen, I just sold you this thing. I know that you need it and I don't know how I'm going to execute it yet, but I will, I promise you, you're going to get what you need. And if you don't, I will give you your money back. So that way they know that they're kind of like on this experimental ride with you. So that is my my entrepreneurial advice that I wish I had more context to that statement 10 years ago because it would have certainly saved a lot of time and headaches. Yeah, I, I understand both sides as well. Uh, when I started my own law firm, I certainly didn't know how to do everything that I was taking clients to do, but I sold it first. I got the client. And then as cases unfolded, it turned out there were things I needed to learn or needed how to, you know, new skills I needed to get. And then of course I'd go to other attorneys and find mentors who could teach me those things. Um, but I, instead of me taking courses and how to do all these things before the need came up, first I was hired and then I went out and, and tried to fig figure it out. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, um, I also have had the experience of creating passion projects that I created and then um, a few, a few different ones that people didn't end up wanting. So I also understand the frustration of building something that then didn't get sold, but the, that also has its own beautiful lessons inside of it. And, you know, it's never, it's never wrong to create something from the heart that we want to create. Although <laughs> it's way more lucrative to do it the other way when, when people actually want it and they tell you they want it and then you build it for them because of the fact that they want it. And I think that you can have all of that. You can have it be lucrative, creative from the heart and valuable to the people, as long as going back to Brene Brown, as long as you're, you know, showing up with like your vulnerability to the table. Because I think that by saying to somebody, like I would be much more inclined to buy from somebody if they're like, if I know that they have the expertise that I need, even if they don't have it figured out yet of how they're going to teach it, I would sign up for that in a minute versus someone else who doesn't have the expertise, but they know how to research and put together something that might be what you need. You know what I mean? Like there's definitely two kind of, um, trains of thought about how to go about that. So yeah, it's, um, it's definitely an interesting lesson. And if I can avoid some folks, the headache and hassle, just, you know, get a few people, whatever you're trying to test out, get a few people and test it out. It doesn't have to be a big elaborate thing. Just test it first and then double down on it. Once you know, you have some type of formula that works. Yeah. So what have you learned as a publisher? What, is there anything from your life of a publisher or in publishing that would be worth sharing? 
for anyone who has ideas they want to write about or stories inside of them. A lot of people, we all dream of writing books. or not, I, I don't know if we all dream of writing books, but many people dream of writing books. Yeah. You know, what I find actually really interesting and someone brought this to my attention. I don't know when it wasn't, wasn't too long ago, but I really, I can't even, I'm working on my own memoir right now and I have someone who's helping me with the writing of it. Um, I've obviously, you know, I've written five of my books, five of my own books. So I know how to write and not from an arrogance place, but I feel like I'm a fairly good writer. But when it comes to memoir, it's so hard to get your story out there without it triggering a whole number of things. So you're trying to like write and write well, but you're also dealing with the baggage that comes with the fact that you're sharing stories that are triggering. Triggering to you or triggering to other people? What what kind of triggers are we talking about? Could be both. Could be both. In this case, I'm talking about triggering to the author themselves. Because if you're trying to write, like you really have to be writing about what you're writing from a place of healing. You don't have to be fully healed, but you have to be in a place where you are actively trying to heal yourself in order for your writing to come out the way you want it to and for it to transcend to the audience. Because I think you can tell, like if you pick up a memoir or even nonfiction books that have a lot of stories in them, you can tell when someone's writing from a place of wound. Like you can really feel it. To try and prove that they're right and the other person's wrong. Yeah. So they're victimizing people. They're, they're telling stories that are completely out of context that they have no place to being, to even being told versus someone who's writing from a place of healing. They're writing it from a, how am I sharing what my, what I went through for the greater good for someone to learn a lesson from not because I hate my mother or because I hate that alcoholic father or any number of things that you could kind of throw in here. And so what I, what someone said to me, and I'm pretty sure it was the person who's helping me ghostwrite. I feel like it has to be her. Um, that she's like, you realize that you have a publishing company because it's your way of healing you and healing the world at the same time. And I was like, tell me more. And she's like, if you look at all of the books that you're publishing, there's a very clear, like there's a vested interest that you have in there, in those stories. And by you helping them publish those stories, you're also doing your own healing at the same time. And I thought that was such an awesome statement of like, huh, look at that. I can like work actively work on my own healing while helping other people, you know, get their books out to the world and for the readers of those books to also heal themselves. And it feels like such a beautiful thing. I was like, oh, I love that. I have to add that to my website somewhere. I don't know when, but I will at some point. <laughs> that's so great. And it's so great to be working with someone that's able to reflect back to you um, even greater beauty in what you're doing than what you were able to see yourself in it. Mm-hmm. It's good to have those types of people around us in general. And I love what you're talking about, the difference between writing a memoir. You called it from a place of healing. I almost think you're not telling the fight from your perspective and why they're wrong, but saying here's how I contributed to making this mistake. Here's how you can avoid the mistakes that I made. Here's where I know I wasn't seeing the full picture. Here's where I could have been better. And then here's where they, as the fumbling, imperfect human that they, you know, that, that, that all humans are, um, where they did things that triggered me and, and, you know, kind of from a place where it's okay and not, um, and doing it for the right reasons and telling a story from a, a better place which I think does transcend. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that if you look at, and we publish nonfiction as well, but all of our nonfiction books have a very heavy component of storytelling to them. So we still kind of get immersed in those stories as well. But if you look at any books about writing specifically, if you're, it's about personal story writing and memoir writing and things like that, 
they all talk about how to like extract the universal truths to what you're writing about. And that's the mark of any good piece of work that has been written is that you could read my story and our stories could be drastically different and not a single thing in common, but you're able to absorb and take in what I'm saying and process, process that through your lens and have some kind of experience as a result versus reading something and someone's just bashing someone over and over and over again. That's not healing for anybody and it's just going to cause damage and potentially a lawsuit. And also I think you lose the reader's trust. I forget what it was. I was reading some sort of famous psychology book and I found that the, the author, although of course he then went on to make certain brilliant points, there was a certain amount of defensiveness and I'm right you guys have always been wrong nature about the intro chapter where you could tell there's some serious beef <laughs> that this guy has with other and I'm reading things like why is your beef here I just wanted to learn the lessons you, that I opened the book for um, right and, and that's from your reader standpoint that is not even from your like I'm a publishing expert standpoint that's from a reader standpoint. So imagine that on like a multiplied scale like it happens all the time with books when people aren't fully thinking through like, why are they even telling the story to begin with? Yeah. Because if you're, if you're telling it to be cathartic, go tell your best friend, write it down and burn it. Like, don't publish it. Absolutely. I mean, I am a relationship coach and I'm sensitive to those things. So, I, you know, um, I was able to, to see it in there and I'm good at reading people. But at the same time, I found it to be interesting, especially given the context of what book it was in. This is like a mm -hmm. famous, um, a famous psychology book. So it's funny. <laughs> Um, what else I'm, I am curious about because I haven't yet set about writing a book, although it is something that I've always thought I would really enjoy doing. And I don't know that I know what's the difference between writing a book or writing anything else. Like I've written online classes. So what makes a book a book? I've, I don't even really know what that is. That's a really interesting question that I've never been asked. What makes a book a book? <laughs> huh. <laughs> Uh, okay, so I will answer it from at least the vantage point of my authors. So for our authors, the reason why they are putting their work into a book, because in a lot of instances, they have white papers and case studies and content on their website, and they might have an online program already. They might have a workbook even. They might be doing eight-hour training sessions, any number of things where content is created. They might have a podcast. They might be regularly contributing to blogs. Exactly, Yeah. For a book, it's really about the credibility. Like that's really kind of one of the key factors for why you would want a book is, you know, like even if I look at my LGBT work, I have, I think it's like 440 blog posts. And then I have 110 podcast episodes for, I think it's called personal branding for the LGBTQ entrepreneur. It's still in iTunes. I haven't recorded a new one in five years probably, but they're all there. And for most, for the most part, it's very kind of evergreen content, but that doesn't matter when you're standing side by side with someone else who has a book, even if it's all of the same material. So all of the legwork that you may have already done with your podcast and your blog and your articles that you might be contributing to, or if you have any guest contributor positions with different publications, people don't care about that. They do if you're providing thought leadership. But if you think about like the last article you read online and you're like, oh my God, this is an amazing article. This was so great. Do you have any idea who wrote it? Probably not. So when you're taking all of that thought leadership and putting it into a book form, it is an instant 
credibility maker, especially if you are entrepreneurial, have your own business already, or are professionally speaking, which all of our authors fit into, into those buckets where they're professional speakers and they're business owners. And so having the book where you then have to distill down all of your thoughts, which is a really kind of great exercise in a lot of ways, because we think, oh, you know, a book might have 60,000 words in it. That's so many, that's so much space and so many pages that I can fill my ideas and thoughts and really kind of, you know, go do a deep dive on all these areas that I'm interested in. But the reality is that a book is really confining and has a lot of constraints that you have to work within. And that's what really I think can make you better at your craft from a business standpoint or better at your craft from a professional standpoint, because you've really had to think through how am I going to fully articulate what I want to say, how I want to say it, how I'm going to impact people as a result of saying it the way that I said it. And that is a really, I think, a really powerful thing that can happen because then once you have the book, you now have a whole new framework that can then turn into different trainings, different online programs, a different podcast direction, because you really had to think through what, what am I saying and why am I saying it? Who cares and why are they going to buy this book? Like, it's a very different kind of lens that you bring to the table when you have to have to really think through how you're going to confine it into the four corners of a book. And what makes, what are the confines and constraints that you'd have in a book that would be different from an online course where you get to tell stories and when you get to teach lessons? Well, if you think about an online course, like I think of my Authors Academy program as an example. So that's a, we have a 14 week program that walks people through from start to finish how to get their book written and published. It's a very comprehensive program. It's 14 weeks. So there's 14, there's actually probably, 20 something lessons at this point. They're all 45 minutes each ish. That is a lot of words and a lot of content. If I wanted to take that and put it in a book form for somebody to be able to digest and understand what I'm saying and why I'm saying it, it would be a lot of work to kind of extract. Here's where, you know, here's where, because in a video form, that's 45 minutes where I can go rogue, I can ramble, I can tell stories that are completely irrelevant, but somehow they feel relevant in the moment. Whereas in a book, you really have to think through every story you share, how it fits with the previous chapter, how it's going to tee up the coming chapter. So while, yes, you have a lot of words to play with, because, you know, we just published a book uh, in June that is 356 pages, and we published another one, oh, actually just a couple weeks ago, that is like 400 pages. It's almost like an LSAT prep guide. It's like a big monster book like that. It's meant more like a, a workbook. But regardless, most people don't want to read books that size. You know, in these cases, the authors, the end users for the authors or end readers for these authors make sense to have a book that size. But most, but most people don't want to read a big book. Like I am turned off at this point by large books. And I also have very limited bandwidth to actually read at this point since I'm, you know, reading for a living most of the time. So, you know, if I, I think about that, you have like 150 pages to express all of your thoughts and you have to make sure that it is very, it's linear that there is a beginning, a middle, and an end, and you are teaching them some kind of lesson. And if you are not doing that, the reader is going to be very unhappy versus an online program or any other medium where you can communicate. It doesn't have to be that, that rigid and specific. Does that make sense? It does. My classes do tend to be quite thought out and planned, mm -hmm. but I do understand exactly what you're saying. If I 
was just having a series of webinars, for example, where I could just talk and tell stories about the thing. It would be different than when I create a specific thing. But all right, now I'm motivated maybe to turn what I already have into a book. All right. Because it sounds like what you're, what you're saying already, um, I've done that trouble. So that's great. Yeah, that's, that's good for you because that's not always the case. <laughs> so you're already ahead of the game and you didn't even know it. Aw. Yay, you're winning today. <laughs> oh, I win today. That's so nice. So another interesting thing about you is, um, you know, now that we've all earned the right to, as queer women, get married, that also unfortunately comes with (laughs) divorce. (laughs) And um, now that more women are raising kids together, there's also things like custody battles, which is something you've recently had to now go through. Yeah. Any any thoughts or stories for women, you know... um, that would be valuable to share? I don't even know. From a from a place of healing, <laughs> not from a place of triggering as, as memoir styles. Yeah. You know, I don't know. My now ex and I were together for 10 years, married for eight of them, and we have a son. And it's been a just an interesting experience of going from being in a familial situation where you have a partner in crime for better or worse and are co-parenting and raising a child together under one roof to being in a situation where you are now you single loving life half the time. And then you are you single, still loving life. Yes. But you're also a mom the other half of the time and trying to navigate that balance of like only seeing your child half of the time And then when you do have your child having no support or no one to, you know, be co-parenting in that moment under your roof together. So it's a really interesting, interesting situation that obviously many, 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 many divorcees go through straight or LGBTQ. But it's definitely uh, it's been a fun, fun learning experience to figure out how do I like I have all this freedom now that I previously didn't have because I have half of my time. I don't have my son with me. And that feels really weird and foreign at the same time. It's like freeing, like, oh my God, I can do so many things. And then also like, wow, it feels really empty and and weird without him in the house. So that is my current status. And it's a, it's a work in progress, not, tr- not triggering at all, but a work in progress. Really interesting perspective. Mm-hmm. What has been valuable that you've learned that you could share any resources or tips or mental frames that have been useful? My active thing that I'm working on is not consciously filling my time. Just because I have more time does not mean that I should be shoving in all kinds of things into that time. I think there's something very, very freeing about being alone. Because I think there's a lot of people who struggle with being alone. And there's people who don't care if they ever are with another human again in their lives. I feel like I'm somewhere in the middle of that where, you know, I don't, it's like really nice to just be me and not have to like, cause I, and I feel like I have a conflict with this because some days I'm like, Oh, I should join like a running club or I should do something really out of my comfort zone and join like an art class or just any random enter any number of things here that have crossed my mind. And then I'm like, no, cause I don't want the commitment of having to be somewhere at a certain day, you know, at a certain time and on a certain day outside of business related stuff, because that's excluded. Um, So it's like this really weird, like, 
what do you do with your time? How do you fill your time? And so I'm just learning to just really enjoy. And I am really enjoying just being alone and enjoying just silence and quiet and reading or just, you know, I'm, I'm dorky and I love watching birds, like just sitting and watching birds. Like it just seems like it's this very weird thing to be going from like full on mothering mode, 24 seven, being a wife again, 24 seven to being like, Oh shit. Like I can actually think about me. And I think there's something so beautiful about that, that I wish more people did because the more conversations I get into, I can see that people jump from one relationship straight into another one. And I have dubbed my birthday was in June. I have dubbed that this year is no date 38. So I will not be dating at all in my 38th year of my life. And maybe next July I will consider dating, but for now it's off the table. Cause I feel like it's more important to be focused on really being healed and, and fully being able to be present in a future relationship. Yeah, absolutely. sounds like you're doing the right thing. Although I will say in terms of getting outside of our comfort zones, I'm, I'm into that sort of thing. It sounds like you really deserve just your time to be present in the moment and get back to being you. But there might come a point where you say, I do want to get involved in a, whatever it is that's outside your comfort zone. Cause it's always good to grow as a person outside of our professional lives. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and I think there's something really cool that I've been experiencing lately where I'm just losing track of time because I'm not neurotically watching my calendar and focused on again outside of business settings. You know, just like, oh, wow, when you know, where do those few hours go? And it's just like especially when I'm with my son, like it's just nice to not be like this happened yesterday actually, where I'm like, when the hell did it turn seven o'clock at night? Like what like, what have we been doing for the last four hours that I don't know where the time went? But there's something really nice and freeing about that, too, rather than being like a very rigid set type of schedule, which I'm more accustomed to having the rigid type schedule. And now it's very freeing to be like busting out of that. So, yeah, it's just it's all these very little things. There's so much more to just kind of the the grander picture of the healing that I'm working on currently related to, you know, not specifically my ex because she and I didn't work because of circumstances mostly out of our control, to be perfectly honest. And so there's just so much baggage and bullshit that goes with that. But I also think by sharing that story when it does come out, which should be sometime in 2020, fingers crossed, um, I think it could be really freeing for other people to see that because I think self-care, it seems like such a buzzword but self-care can look like so many different things, which could easily be like, you know, my self-care for today is I'm not getting out of bed until 10, 10 o'clock. Like that seems so crazy for some people, but at the same time, that could be self-care for somebody else. So hundred percent, if you need to rest, then you rest. That's the definition of self-care where I come from. Yep. But I think people have like boxes that they try to put self-care within where it's like, just do things that make you feel good. And who cares what other people have to say about them is my definition of it. Right. Someone who's totally type A might judge you for sleeping until 10, but um, you're not taking care of that person. You're taking care of yourself. That's why, that's why we call it self-care, not Correct. type A Correct. to-do list person care. <laughs> yes. Which I am, I am type A to-do list person, which is why it is such a, a um, interesting thing that I'm expanding my horizons outside of being a type A to-do list person. Right. Revolutionary. Let yourself sleep in. Get crazy. I know, right? So Jen, where can listeners go to learn more about what you're up to? 
Sure. So there are a couple of places. They can go to my personal website, which is jentgrace.com, and that's Jen with two N's. Or if they are interested in learning about authorship or thought leadership or anything like that, they can go to publishyourpurposepress.com, which I recognize is a tongue twister, but publishyourpurposepress.com. All right. I'll have links to all of that below. Awesome. Great. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for making the time. Yeah, I'm so happy we did this finally. This was awesome. Yeah, you're awesome, Jen. Always (laughs) love talking to you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And now I would love to hear from you. Jen and I talked about a whole lot of things in this interview, but I'm curious. What of the many things we talked about was the most impactful for you? Head on over to the blog at womenwantingwomen.com and let us know. And if you're not already with the woman of your dreams and you're ready to finally find her so you could be best friends who learn and grow together and share dreams together and have adventures together and have passionate intimacy together, then there are free resources for you on womenwantingwomen.com that can help, including a guide to quickly and easily eliminating rejection from your life, a quiz to find out what qualities the woman of your dreams will find most attractive about you when you meet her, a quick guide to the three biggest mistakes most women make when coming out, a guidebook for finding your lesbian soulmate, and a free matchmaking survey you could fill out in case I already know the woman of your dreams. All of this is free on my website at womenwantingwomen.com. And when you claim your free access to any of these things, you automatically become a Jordana Michelle Insider, which will give you instant access to an email training series I created to help you get on your game to finding your soulmate faster and easier, and to help you grow the deepest possible love together once you finally do meet. Plus, you'll get exclusive content and special giveaways and some personal updates from me that I just don't share anywhere else. So go to womenwantingwomen.com and check it out for yourself and share it with any other LGBT women that you think can benefit from what I'm offering there. Until next time, don't forget that hot lesbians are everywhere, that love is real, and that the woman of your dreams is on her way into your life in perfect timing. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on Women Wanting Women.